0: The Apostle Paul is on trial. His judge is King Agrippa of the infamous family that cut off John the Baptist's head. He lived in incest with his sister Bernice. It is this dubious royal
1: pair who listen carefully as the Apostle Paul explains why he believes Jesus has conquered death. Agrippa butts in before Paul
0: reaches his conclusion with the accusation Too much study has
1: driven you insane. You decide who is crazy, Paul or Agrippa. The issue that I want you to think about today is, what do we usually mean when we talk about somebody being out of their minds or insane? If we look it up in the dictionary, we get something like this, someone who is out of touch with reality, someone who has come under so much stress due to anxiety or fear that they can no longer function in society. Now, that's quite a definition, and it's the kind of definition that you would expect from Webster's. The problem here is, who determines what reality is? Who decides whether or not we are in or out of it? What we're going to do today is study a text where a secular materialist concluded that the Apostle Paul was out of his mind. Why did he come to this kind of a judgment? because the Apostle Paul believed that there was a man who had died who had actually risen from the dead. Now I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you think it's a little bit crazy? Do you think it's a little bit insane to believe that a person that was dead can come back to life? Now that's something in our society that we kind of assume. We just assume that resurrection is a reality. In fact, I think that in our own day that the idea of a resurrection has become very acceptable. In fact, the hardest thing for a pastor to do today is to tell the old story in a way that will hit you as a new story so that you don't fall asleep. That was not the problem in the first century. When the Apostle Paul traveled around from one city to the next and told people, Listen! Jesus of Nazareth rose again from the dead. They would either get really excited about it and rejoice, or they would get angry and stone him, shouting out, You're insane. You're out of your mind. People in our own society do neither. They just play another beautiful organ melody. They just put up another stained glass window. They just say, Oh, hum, for 2,000 years, We have known that Christ rose again from the dead. But I want you to realize that the Lord God of heaven doesn't want this business of resurrection to ever become a ho-hum thing to any of us. Let's face the issue.
0: I believe that Festus, much more than a lot of modern people that hear the message, understood what the issues were. He was a Roman governor. He listened very carefully to what the Apostle Paul was saying, and he stood up at the end of his speech, as we'll find out, and he shouted out, Paul, you've got to be out of your mind. And I want to share this with you. I would rather have you stand up after I teach you the Word of God and tell me, David, you are out of your tree. That's crazy. You're much closer to the kingdom if you react like that. Then if you react like, it's a religion. It's church. Everyone, sure, the resurrection of Christ, we're moving towards Easter. It's a great story. You see, that's the person that scares me. That's the person that's going to go through life, tranquilized. They're going to go all the way through their life, living just for now. Suddenly, eternity is going to come upon them, and they're not going to be ready for it. Because... Our modern world doesn't take the eternal world serious. The Apostle Paul's world took it very seriously. They threw people to the lions. They burned them. They crucified them. But because they understood what the issues were, hundreds upon thousands of people came to the light. You need to decide whether the message that I present to you today the Apostle Paul's message is light in the darkness or whether it's madness. That's the extreme. Many people throughout this area think there's another alternative. It's a nice religious story. If you think it's a nice religious story, throw your Bible away, just go to church and use it like a pillow. But don't tell me you believe in the Bible. Don't tell me you think the Bible is a good book. You haven't even read it. Unless you get down on your knees and say, I believe it's light. I believe it's the answer. I'm going to live my whole life for the resurrection of Christ. Or, I'm going to turn totally away from it. And I'm going to say that I think people that believe in the resurrection of Christ are a little bit cuckoo. One of them flew over the cuckoo's nest. Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 25, verse 23. How many of you have ever watched the Emmy Awards on TV? Come on, we can be honest. This is Sunday morning. We've got to be truthful. A lot of you have. How many of you ladies like to watch the Emmy Award because you want to find out all the crazy fashions that might be hitting the market during the next year, things that you would be scared to death to ever wear, but the crazy movie starts out in Hollywood, they'll wear it, right? How many of you guys say, oh, no, it couldn't be on again. I'm going to go read the paper. If you think of the Emmy Awards, you'll have a little bit of a feel to the way that this chapter starts out. Chapter 25, verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. The reason I mention the Emmy Awards is that in the ancient world, the equivalent of our society's hero worship and star worship of Hollywood would be the kings and queens and governors of the ancient world. Agrippa and Bernice were a classic example of this kind of a thing. And Dr. Luke, with a stroke of his pen, gives you this mental picture of this tremendously dashing, handsome fellow, the Prince Charles of the ancient world, Agrippa, coming in in Caesarea. Caesarea is a beautiful town. It's by the Mediterranean Sea. The, the auditorium they're walking in would be ornately designed with beautiful Greek columns or Roman-style uh, architecture. Just a very awesome situation full of pomp and circumstance. In fact, maybe the Emmy Awards isn't the best way to picture it. The English in our society, in our world, probably do a lot better job with communicating the idea of power and pomp and ceremony. And that's the feel that you have here. And if you've ever been a part of that, like if you've ever visited the White House, I want you to realize that that's part of the world. That's part of the world system. It's not necessarily wrong. But I want all of you as business people and people that are in government and housewives and all different vocations, at some time or another in your life, you're going to be exposed to this pomp and circumstance. What you'd have to be very careful to do is that you don't make it the ground of your life. Many people are living for ceremony. They're living for the right clothes. They're living to be able to be dressed like Bernice in the ancient world, like Princess Diana in the modern world. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if it's not the meaning of your life. You say, Dave, what do you mean? You see, if you're living for all the power, if you're living to have people look at you and say, wow, when the crunch comes between your pomp and your dress and your ceremony and all the acclaim of men and a simple word like justice, if the meaning of your existence is pomp and ceremony and looking good at the Emmys or being ceremoniously acclaimed, If that's the guts of your life, whether it be on that high a plane or on just the everyday plane of desiring to have social acceptability, when the crunch comes between your position and justice, what are you going to choose? You'll choose what the meaning of your life really is. And Festus illustrates it. I want you to see how the Roman governor reacts to all this pomp and circumstance. Verse 24, Paul has been brought in and Festus introduces the case. King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem. And again here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. It's very dramatic. You can just see it. I mean, he just pictures all these Jewish opposition shouting and yelling, take his life, crucify him. Notice Festus now. Listen to Festus. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty, that's the Caesar, Nero, about him. Therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation I may have something to write For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. You know a little bit about this fellow, Festus. What would you evaluate based upon what I just read? Now, I was a little bit dramatic, and I nuanced a little bit of the way I read it. But if you just read those words objectively, what would you conclude about Festus just from his words? Once again, just like last week, on the, on the outside, on the outside, he looks like a man that's very conscientious. He looks like a man that really wants to know the truth. He looks like a man that's trapped by circumstances. I mean, he would have let this poor, innocent soul go. But this stupid idiot asked to go to Caesar. You know, that's what the case looks like, doesn't it? That's what Festus says. Is that the truth? It's very far from the truth. You know why the Apostle Paul had to appeal to Caesar? Because Festus asked him, will you go up and be tried in Jerusalem? He tried to use the Apostle Paul as a political football. You see, he wasn't ready to let the Apostle Paul go free. That decision had already been taken out of his hands By this point in the chapter, Paul had already appealed to Caesar because he had to. If he didn't appeal to Caesar, he probably would have been ambushed on the way to Jerusalem. If he made it to Jerusalem, he could have easily been thrown to the Jewish leaders. They would have stoned him. The reason he appealed to Caesar is because Festus did not have the moral guts to let an innocent man go free. The very first lesson I want you to see in this chapter is that the Bible exposes to you the way people really are. And I want to share something with you. You're going to find very few people, you're going to find very few people whose veneer is the same as their guts. You understand what I'm saying? My older brother told me about a, a VW, a convertible VW he was going to buy for his son. So as I look around the audience, a lot of you dads have gone through this. You know, you've got to try to get a vehicle for your son in Midlothian. The big vehicle is to get a great big 4x4, one of those great big trucks, so you can really, you know, move around town. This VW convertible just looked perfect. I mean, it was painted spanking new. I mean, it just glistened in the sunlight. I mean, the whole interior had been redone. The seats had been redone. I mean, it had even the convertible part, the canvas coming up, had all been redone. I mean, it looked like a marvelous buy. I mean, for $2,500, you could ride in this beauty. But my brother, you know, he had a lot of gray hair. And so he said, well, you know, I've got a friend that tunes up all the Maseratis in town, and he tunes up a lot of the fancy cars, and he also looked at VWs from time to time. He ought to know something about this car. And before I shell out $2,500, before I let DJ have this car, I think I better take it over and let my friend check it out. So his friend, he went over, and uh, the guy that worked in his friend's garage with VW said, sure, I'll look at it. And he looked out in the side and said, boy, the old girl's is up really good, isn't she? And then he said, well, let's just put her up, you know, we'll just put her up on the hydraulic lift and take a look. They put her up, and even Don, who knows nothing about cars, could tell that when you looked right through the bottom of the car, right up into the interior that was within, she was full of dead man's bones. I mean, that old lady was painted up really good on the outside, but she was still an old lady on the inside. That's the way a lot of people are. You see, most of us, in fact, a lot of us play this game. We're like Festus. We have a veneer. We put on all kinds of veneer of justice and and how considerate we are of people and how much we want the right. The bottom line is what we care about is our power. We care about our prestige. And please don't sit there piously and say, oh, I'm never influenced by that. Oh, yes, you are. It takes tremendous courage to be a person whose veneer matches their interior. And as Christ-like ones, Christ wants us to have a veneer that more and more is becoming like him, which reflects a new heart. You see, the reason that Festus would not let an innocent man go free is Festus didn't live for a word called justice. He lived for a word called self. And he covered it all up. But Dr. Luke with magnificent keenness into human nature by the Spirit's guidance is showing us that Festus on the pages of scripture is just an expedient politician. If he was really a man of moral guts, he would just set the prisoner free. If the man was not guilty, if there was nothing worthy of death in this case, If there was no charge against this man, you don't keep hearing the case. You just declare him a free man and let him walk out. Over and over again, every Roman official that deals with Paul, that deals with Paul, says he's innocent, but not one of them has the courage to stand for what's right. Now, it's easy for us to piously look back and say, oh, you know, how could they be so horrible? And how could they ever do something like this? But it's easy to do that. It's easy to say, well, my whole career would come to an end. The Jews might rebel. The whole nation could go up in an uproar. I've got to go along with expediency. Our world plays that game every day. You say, Dave, what's the only way that I can do what's right? You've got to be living for another judge. The only way you'll do what's right in your business, the only way that I'll do what's right in my life, The only way that you can really have moral guts is for you to believe deep in your heart that one day you will not stand before your boss, one day you will not stand before your society, one day you will stand before Jesus Christ who knows everything about you, and you'll give it an account. And a man or woman that genuinely believes that one day, I'm not talking about a pious Christian who's just a cultural Christian. I'm talking about a man or a woman that genuinely believes that one day they will give an account to a resurrected Christ. That's the only person that can really have moral guts. And I think we need to pray for one another because that's what the world needs to see. That's what Christ means when he talks about being a light in the darkness. This week, in your jobs, in your relationships with people, you're going to be faced with expediency, maintaining my position, getting ahead, or being a man or woman of truth and justice. And Christ called you into his family to be the kind of a person who would be just, honest, truthful, no matter what the cost. And that's the only way that we can be used by the Spirit not to be part of the problem, but part of the solution. And I want to challenge from the smallest children to the oldest adults in this room, we desperately need Christ-like ones to go out into every area of life, not withdraw from life, not withdraw from society, but get into society, but be lights in that society. And a belief in the resurrection, a belief that one day you will give an account to Him, Is the ultimate ethic that will enable you to have the strength and enable me to have the strength. And I want you to pray for me, because it's easy to talk like this. But I'm not the Apostle Paul right now facing judges who could take my life. I don't know what I would do under that kind of pressure. And either do you. All I can do today is be honest in my relationship with the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to help my veneer to be like the Christ-like interior that God created in me. And if I make those kind of decisions moment by moment, the Lord will be preparing me for those moments of crisis when life-changing decisions are made. In chapter 26, we look at the essence of Christianity. Festus believes that the question under consideration is, What in the world are we going to tell Nero? What charge are we going to give Nero about this crazy little Jew named Paul? Paul uses the opportunity to testify of his relationship with Christ. It's a very important passage for every one of you. If I were to walk up to you and say, spell out for me the essence of Christianity. Spell out for me your faith. Tell me why you believe what you believe. Not one of you should balk from that. Now, I know you're going to be nervous, but I don't want you to be nervous because you don't have the knowledge in your heart. If you'll listen for the next few minutes, very simply, the greatest human, fully human apostle, Jesus Christ is the greatest teacher, but Paul comes, as far as the apostles, the most insightful teacher, is going to show you how you testify of your faith. Now the issue that the Apostle Paul lays out is it's either madness or it's the truth. And the essence of the issue is the resurrection. The fundamental issue in Christianity is did Jesus of Nazareth die and rise from the dead? Now don't just shovel that off in some, oh yeah, I know that I believe that. Think about it because that's the whole foundation of Christianity. That's what the Apostle Paul is going to say is the essential issue. It's why the Jews don't like him. It's why he's been arrested. It's why at Athens, at the Areopagus, why the intellectuals of his day laughed at him. The ultimate issue that everybody needs to decide is fundamentally this. Did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? And if you believe he rose again from the dead, why do you believe it? How do you know it's true? Well, my Sunday school teacher told me, that's not going to cut it on a secular university campus. A secular professor will look at you right now and say, who cares what your Sunday school teacher thinks? Wasn't she wrong about some other things she told you when you were a kid? That's not going to cut it. You go, it's a nice thing to believe. Every year at Easter we celebrate it. That's not going to cut it. And don't get lazy on me in your mind. Because whether or not Christ rose again from the dead is really important for you and I. If we step into eternity the next few minutes, what we believed about the resurrection will be all important. And the Bible doesn't ask you just to jump off a cliff. Oh, I believe in the resurrection. And swallow your brains. Paul gives a very careful case to why he believed in the resurrection. Let's look at it. Chapter 26. So Paul motioned with his hand and he began his defense. In verses 2 through 3, he talks about the fact that he's very pleased that he can give his case before King Agrippa because King Agrippa is well acquainted with all the Jewish controversies, all the Jewish customs. And then he says, I beg you to listen to me patiently. That is the way you begin a defense. You always begin a defense by asking... For the patience of those that are listening to you, you always begin with a legitimate, conscientious compliment of the one that you're appealing to. In the ancient world, it was an accepted form, but there was a reason for that a form. You don't want to create opposition when you don't need to have opposition. Now, the Apostle Paul would never sweet talk someone, he wouldn't give a bunch of garbage. But he would tell the truth, and he starts his defense not by trying to get on the wrong side of Agrippa, but by trying to get rid of the opposition, rid of the little things that would cause him not to listen, and so he begins by calling attention to the fact that Agrippa is an expert. He was. Agrippa was brilliant in understanding all the controversies and laws of Jerusalem. He was responsible for appointing the high priest He was not a moral man, but he was a religious man. There's a big difference. He was not a man of integrity, but he was a man of knowledge. He did know what the issues were. And so the Apostle Paul began by saying, I'm glad I can talk to a judge who knows what the case is all about. And then he said, will you patiently hear my case? Verse 4. The Jews all know the way that I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known known me for a long time. They can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? The Apostle Paul, in a brilliant move, presents himself in the beginning on the side of his accusers. What every one of you need to understand about the Apostle Paul is he was not raised as a Gentile. He was not raised as an Ivy Leaguer from Princeton University that was totally a Gentile. Paul was raised as Jewish, as Jewish as you can get. He was as Jewish as kosher food. Very important to understand that. And he was raised according to the strictest sect of that religion. He was a Pharisee. The essence of Phariseeism was to take all the cleanness, all the ceremonial purity of the priesthood that a Jewish priest was to live by. A Pharisee took all those extremes of ceremonial cleanness and applied it to its total life. And a Pharisee did it very conscientiously. And they believed in the resurrection. It's very important to understand that theologically, the Pharisee believed that God could raise the dead. That was assumed in their theology. They believed the Old Testament taught it. Daniel 12 explicitly speaks about a resurrection. Isaiah 53 speaks about a Messiah who will rise from the dead. Psalm 16 speaks about a son of David who will not decay in the grave, who will come back to life. Today's modern world, the academic world today, argues a great deal about what first century Judaism believed. An incredible thing to me in that is that they will not take what the New Testament says as a testimony to first century belief. The Apostle Paul, who was strictly raised the a Pharisee, presents to his opposition, it is an undebatable point that the Pharisees strongly believed in the resurrection. Now I want you to step back away from the belief of the resurrection. Is it easy to believe in the resurrection? And the answer to that question is from a human standpoint, it's not easy to believe in the resurrection. In fact, if you think it's easy to believe in the resurrection, you stand at the coffin of one of your loved ones. As I look around this room, a lot of you have had that experience. Some of the little ones in our church family yet have not had the opportunity yet to be in the face of death, to have to stand looking at death. But when you're given an opportunity, I want you to look at it, and I want you to ask yourself, is it easy to believe? And the answer to that question is, humanly, it's not easy to believe. Our normal tendency, the normal, depraved, sinful tendency of our heart, is not to believe. In the hardcore reality of our life, our tendency is to say, this life is all there is. This life is all I've ever known. That's what I can see. That's what I can experience with my senses. It's really hard for me to believe that there could be life beyond this life. Even harder to believe that someone that was dead could come back to life. You see, it's not too hard for me to believe that someone that's dead goes into some spooky never-never land somewhere or kind of oozes into the ocean of existence. And you go into like a holding tank until the great judgment. Your identity never ceases to exist. There's never a time biblically when you're not an identity, a person, someone who can think, who can feel, and who can decide. But the Bible teaches much more than that. The Bible teaches that one day your body will be miraculously changed and you will conquer death. You will rise from the grave and have a new life, a new body, an eternal body that will last forever and ever and ever. The Bible teaches that one day you'll be able to grab hold of Jesus Christ and you will not go right through Him. You'll be able to hug Him. You will be able to look into His eyes. You'll be able to eat with Him. You'll be able to walk with Him. You'll be able to know Him. Your loved ones that have gone on, you're going to be with them again, not just in a dream, but in ultimate reality. Now that's hard to believe. You say, Dave, how do I believe that? We need to begin with a question, do you believe in God? The very first question that all of us need to ask ourselves is do we believe in God? Now, if you believe in the God of the Bible, not just the Great Spirit, not just the ultimate medicine man, but if you believe in the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God that spoke creation to existence, the God who was able to walk with Adam and Eve, the God that we've been studying about the last few weeks, the pre-existent Christ, and all that we learned about the Lord's career before He came to this world. If you believe in the God of the Bible, the triune God, then it's a very small step to believe God can resurrect people from the dead. You see, that's why the attack on God's creation of Adam and Eve is so strategic. You see, if you have a hard time believing that God created Adam and Eve, why don't you just throw out the whole Bible? I can understand at least where you're coming from. But don't cut Adam and Eve out and say, oh, I believe in the resurrection. Why? If you have a hard time believing that God stooped down and fashioned men out of the dirt because he wanted to try to do it in a way that we could kind of identify with, kind of like an artist, he shaped the man out of the dirt and went, and he began to live. If you have a hard time believing that God can do that, What's different about that than raising his son from the dead? You see what I'm talking about? If you believe in God, then what the Bible teaches isn't that hard. If you don't believe in God, just throw the book away. Live your life for a different basis. I hope you'll find some good evidence for living that way. I hope that people that you're following are really telling you the truth. I hope the great doctors that you think are so brilliant don't change their mind 50 years down the line. But don't give me this garbage about well, I have a hard time believing that and hard time believing that. But I believe this. The hardest thing in the Bible to believe is the resurrection of Christ. But if you believe in God, as revealed in the Bible, then it's not irrational. You don't have to swallow your brains if you accept the reality of the biblical God, then it is perfectly logical to believe that that biblical God can raise the dead. And that's an essential difference between the people that you walk out and meet this week who are unbelievers and those of you that are believers. Those of you that are believers are people who believe that God raises the dead. And if you believe that God raises the dead, you can love your kids. Because you'll realize that your love has an eternal dimension. You won't withdraw from your children because you'll be afraid. Well, maybe someone will take them away from me. Maybe they'll die. You won't live your life in fear. You'll live life to the full. Because you realize as you grow older, you're only moving towards real life. You understand the difference? The resurrection is the most powerful, uplifting reality that you can ever believe. It's what gives on my life meaning. It's what I'm, I'm doing, what I'm doing this morning. If the resurrection isn't true, life is really a bummer. We might as well be honest. If there isn't any resurrection from the dead, I don't care how fancy you make this life. Now the young ones will say, oh, I think this life is great. I think life is really worth living. If this is all there is, fantastic, I love it. I'd ask all the gray-headed ones in this audience, do you think life is really great if this is all we've got? I mean, you're going to live five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years, sixty-five years. How many think it's really great? You're going to die, be buried in the ground. That's it. That's all there is. There's nothing after that. There's just now. And then, pfft. You see, if that's all there is, then life becomes empty. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is teaching. It's It's emptiness. It's emptiness. If you live life under the sun, it's a real bummer. But God has not called us to live life under the sun, but in the sun. And what Paul is saying is this. His essential point is, if you believe in God, then it's not a hard step to believe that that God can raise the dead. Now, the specific point that we're going to get into next week is, how do you know that God specifically raised jesus from the dead you see this week we've talked generally about resurrection in fact most people will generally accept the resurrection if you went around and said hey do you believe that god can raise the dead they'll go oh yeah yeah i believe he rose from the dead sure god can raise the dead theologically it's a possibility you could go to almost any theological seminary in America and you could ask almost any professor, do you believe that guy can raise the dead? They'll say, oh, sure, I believe that guy can raise the dead. You could ask him another question, though. Do you believe that specifically, concretely, in history, and I've got to use all of that description to get down to what I'm really talking about. Do you believe that a specific moment in a specific land called Palestine that God actually did raise... Jesus from the dead. And that's when you'll get down to what the real issue is. There's religious people that will say, I I believe the story. If you say, listen, do you believe if you went there with a camera and took a picture that the stone would be rolled away, that the tomb would be empty? Do you believe that if you were with the apostles and you were gathered together in the upper room That Jesus could come and appear right there with you and be there in a real body that could eat, that Thomas could thrust his hand into his side. And then you're dealing with something totally different. And I know a lot of pastors even that would say, oh, let's not push it that hard. You know, they saw a vision. The Bible's not saying they just saw a vision. You can call it a vision, it was a marvelous vision. It was the ultimate vision, but it was real. It was ultimate reality. And whether or not you're a child of God depends upon whether or not you really believe that reality. Jesus said, if you believe in God, believe also in me. Paul is saying, if you believe in God, then you can believe that God raised his precious son from the dead. You know, the only thing that will keep you from really believing that is the festus complex, the veneer idea. You never come to grips with yourself. You're never willing just to be honest. You're never willing to just go before God and say, God, I've got a lot of questions, but I would really like to know the truth. I believe that every one of you in this room that genuinely wants to know the truth will ultimately end up believing from the depths of your heart that Christ rose again from the dead. This week, Paul's presented the idea in a general way. The tragedy of the Pharisees was that they were not consistent with their own theological reason. The Pharisees were willing to accept in generalities, sure, a guy can raise the dead. But when God did it, they couldn't believe it. You know why they couldn't believe it? Because to believe it would mean they'd have to get down on their knees and let Christ totally change their world. When Nicodemus believed in his Savior, Nicodemus could never be the same again. His position in the Sanhedrin would be totally changed. His whole prestige, all of his power could be lost in a second of time. When the Apostle Paul believed, he went from being an up-and-coming Jewish scholar to being the outcast of his family, the outcast of his race. And yet among those who believe, he became the greatest Apostle in the first century church. And all of us are making those kind of decisions. Are we going to be men and women of integrity who believe in God and therefore believe in the Resurrection? Or is it just going to be a veneer? Is it madness? Or is it light in the darkness? The way that we answer that question decides our eternal destiny.